Well, it's a pleasure to come and share the exciting news of what God is doing in West Africa. And I, I really enjoy Laurie's illustration of the coin and the impression and that we are made in the image of God. When she tells it, I, st- I try and picture 30 elephants somehow stacked in a reverse pyramid, getting that image into the- I'll never look at a nickel the same way again. You know, we went to the Royal Canadian Mint one time in Winnipeg, and uh, I was actually really, really impressed. The coins we have in West Africa are are made in the Royal Canadian Mint in Winnipeg, so we recognize some of the designs. But I was quite disappointed because at the end of the tour, they wouldn't let me root through the dumpster in the back. Well, Lori and I have, uh, have had a chapter change three, week, three weeks ago. We stepped off the plane with 24 bags, and we moved from West Africa to start a new, uh, new chapter here in, in Alberta. Uh, actually, we got 25 bags. My son was so excited about us coming that he grabbed an extra bag that looked very similar to our bag. <laughs> so we very sheepishly went back to the airport the next morning with this extra bag. I'm sure it was for somebody going to some very important business meeting that uh, was disastrous because they missed their bag. (laughs) If we look back on 11 years in West Africa and try and summarize it into a statement uh, of what we've been doing, what we've been called to do, it would have to somehow be tied uh, tied in with raising up Christ-like disciples. If we look at every activity that we were called to do and participated in and every activity that you yourselves are involved in, somehow it has to be tied together with the statement, making or raising up Christ-like disciples. And we have some incredible um, examples of people we've worked with who emulate that. We have some pictures to show you of some of these things that demonstrate disciple-making. I was in Burkina Faso a few weeks ago. Uh, I'd gone up to meet a fellow who had helped to bring some resources to dig a well, and I met him at the airport in Ouagadougou, and we traveled west in Burkina Faso over to the western part uh, into a remote village, and we were standing around this hole in the ground, uh, quite a perfectly formed hole, amazingly perfectly round Consider that they dig it by hand. And there's a crowd from the village had joined us. Kids were all there, and some people from far-reaching areas had come to welcome us and to show us the progress on this well that we were partnering together with the villagers on. And I crept towards the hole, uh, knowing that it was very deep. They had gone down to 30 meters, about 100 feet already. And as I crept towards the hole, I was very careful not to kick a stone down into the hole because there was a guy down there digging as we were standing around. At at 100 feet deep, when you look over and down into the hole, you can see nothing. It's so dark down there and dangerous. I I, I wouldn't wouldn't want to go down there. To get down, they just cut little holes in the sides of the wall as they're going down. And so when he's done digging, this guy will work his way up 100 feet back up to the surface. It's dangerous. And if you know anything about oxygen and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide is heavier 
than oxygen. So how do these guys actually breathe down there as they're exhaling carbon dioxide, as they're digging, the carbon dioxide levels accumulate, pushing the oxygen up. A friend of ours who is a missionary in Liberia wanted to go down into the hole to experience what it was like to be a digger. And when he got down to the bottom of a 20-meter hole, he became quite dizzy. He was running out of air. And so the people, the experienced people on the top, started throwing water down the hole. Not to refresh him, not to wake him up, but to mix the air on the way down. And so I asked these guys in Burkina Faso, as we were standing around the hole uh, that was 100 feet deep, I said, how do you guys breathe down there? And they said, oh, it's quite easy. We go over here and cut some leaves and some tree branches, and we throw those down the hole. And these will give off, they will absorb some carbon dioxide, and they will give off oxygen for quite some time. I took their advice, and I said, thank you. I'll believe you. I'm not going to go down and test your theory. And so while we were standing there, the digger had motioned for the guys on the surface to pull up a bucket of dirt, and they did that and dumped it over on the side and sent it back down. Burkina Faso uh, is, struggles for water. It's up just south of the Sahara Desert. And they say quite repeatedly, water is life. Water is life. And any time you can try and improve the water situation, you're improving people's lives. And so we had a a serious issue in Burkina Faso in 2011. The rains did not come. And there's no rivers to speak of up in that area that people can go and fetch water if their well is not recharged. If the well runs dry or the rain doesn't come. The rains come hard and heavy. And when they don't come, the crops fail in the area and people look for all kinds of ways to satisfy their hunger. And in 2011, they ate everything they had on hand. And by 2012, they had nothing left to put in the ground for seed. And if you have contributed to the World Evangelism Fund in the Church of the Nazarene, you were there helping through this Nazarene Compassionate Ministries response to help the people up in this area with seed so they could grow a crop in 2012. So one of the purposes of coming to monitor this new well being dug was to see the result, the previous result of the distribution of seed that we were part of in this area. And the reports were very good. The progress on the well was fantastic. But as we were standing around this well, the local pastor pointed out a woman on the other side of, this, of the well in this crowd of people. And the language there is moray. It was translated into French. And my French is, is a little sketchy, so I didn't quite understand why the local pastor was making a point to introduce us to this woman who was part of the crowd at the well. And after we were done with the little ceremony around the well, they asked this woman to show us what she was doing. And so, so she led us across the village and down to this mud hut that was essentially about this big from here to the wall with a few benches inside and a chalkboard at the end and we began to realize that she was a teacher and that what she was doing in this mud hut was teaching adult literacy literacy in Burkina Faso is a big challenge it's one of the top 10 if you can call it the top top 10 in the world for illiterate uh, illiteracy 7 of the top 10 countries 
on the list are found in West Africa. It's a big challenge. And this local church, working with this very capable lady from their church, had determined that they could make a difference in their community. Not just to teach the villagers how to read and write in the local language, but to teach them in order that they could read the scripture in their local language. The woman was intentionally raising up Christ-like disciples through her action. And when I saw that, it touched my heart. I said, this is the church. This is what the church is to be all about. To be in the business of looking around itself and saying, how can we respond, react? How can we intentionally move forward with raising up disciples with who we are and with what we have? She inspires me. And we've got some pictures of other folks and actions that are very inspiring on the West Field. If we can call up the first slide, thank you. Literature is critical in developing mature Christians. And we've, developed, we've, we've created a couple of print shops in the West Field, and we're learning how to print things in the context of the people, in the context of the, what they can afford, in, in locations where they can get access to it. It's been a lot of fun to, to take a system of printing, a system of binding, and try and simplify it as much as you can. We've developed... Um, a way of running the machines off of solar with a solar panel and, and some of our, our print shops are challenged by poor electricity or unstable electricity. This pastor uh, who... Um, Becky, where are you? Um, JJ from, from Ivory Coast. There you are, sorry. Do you remember JJ from Ivory Coast? Uh, J.J. is a leader, and he's written a book called Sorcery and Sanctification. Sorcery is a, is a big issue in, in the Westfield and on the continent of Africa. It's a big challenge, and how do we respond to it as a church? And J.J. has written a book called Sorcery and Sanctification. Well, he sent me his manuscript in Accra. He lives in the country next over in Ivory Coast. He sent me this manuscript, hoping that we could print it, and I didn't respond to him, but we secretly printed a few copies, and when he came for a leaders' meeting, we sat him down in a chair and ran and got his suit coat, and then he opened these, uh, what he thought were gifts, and it turned out to be the book that he's written. And so he had a little book signing of all the leaders. He got to sign his book and present it. But what a tremendous, a tremendous facility, having printing... Uh, the, ca- the ca- capacity to print something like this, a needed book like this, in the local context, in the local price. Here's a, a picture that demonstrates someone struggling with finance and accounting. And h- how does finance and accounting relate to raising up Christ-like disciples? Well, if you look in the experience of Skyview, if your treasurer... Uh, was not transparent with how they did the work or not competent with how they did the work, it would scatter this church, I guarantee it. So teaching techniques and creating techniques that are, that are conducive for the local leaders to use uh, contribute to raising up Christ-like disciples. So we've adapted a little Excel program that uh, is really cool. In fact, we call it the cool sheets because the square up in the top left turns red if the books are out of balance. Here's the well I was describing a few minutes ago. 
We also are involved in drilling uh, wells the conventional way. This well was partnered by the church in Penticton, and so we're going to speak in Penticton in a few weeks' time, and I'm going to take a special report of how this well is contributing to raising up Christ-like disciples in Port Harcourt, Nigeria. This is a fascinating sort of a system of drilling a well. Uh, If you've ever drilled a fence post hole with a hand auger, this is essentially a manual system of drilling a well. And with a kit like this, a local church or a district could have a water drilling ministry in an area that's challenged with water. You can't dig where there's rocks and stones and geological formations that, that prevent you from just hand drilling down. But this kit will take you to 50 feet and basically for the cost of your time and labor. We're also trying to experiment with ways of lifting water out of a well that's very cheap. You could go and get a submersible pump and a big solar system or a generator, but already you're out of the context of most of the people in the Church of the Nazarene in West Africa. So we're trying to develop systems that use scrap metal, old car tires, and pieces of rope that go down into the well, and with a washer system, you tie a piece of car tire on as a washer at intervals on the rope, And as the rope goes down to the bottom of the well, enters a tube, it will draw water up the tube, up to the surface around the the old car tire and back down the hole. And it's all done in a, a context where people could fix it if it was broken. I had the opportunity to go and attend a seminar in a very beautiful part of Ghana called Busia, And we were learning some techniques of creating solar panels um, using bricks of solar cells that are quite easily available and soldering them together on a piece of glass on a frame and creating a solar panel. Well, how does a solar panel contribute to raising up Christ-like disciples? We have many training centers on the Africa West Field where uh, people are coming to study uh, pastoral development. And so we have many, many leaders who are working away on course of study, and having a solar panel changes the whole dimension of a training center because now the center can be used at night. You can use it to, you can actually charge your cell phone. And you think, what are cell phones doing in West Africa? Well, everyone has a cell phone in West Africa. Everyone in the world, I think, has a cell phone. And everyone knows how to work it better than I know how to work ours. These are lights. LED lights created with PVC. They're really quite amazing. You just take a strip of LED lights and cut off the amount of brightness you want, solder some ends to it, and you've got a light. Here's a solar panel that I just soldered up to try it myself. On the west field as well, we we have... um, an active response for disasters. And here a flooding has taken place in Chad, in the city of N'Djamena, and through Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, through which most of us participate in, in the Church of the Nazarene, we've been able to help with some needed food to not only the Christian community in N'Djamena, but the Muslim community. This woman here is uh, expressing her thanks for some seed that she received in the drought in Burkina Faso in 2012. 
we were able to distribute some food and some oil and some seeds. These people are standing in front of a church that overwhelms me every time I go and visit it. It's in Port Harcourt, Nigeria, in a slum, in a very uh, concentrated, populated place. And in 2006, uh, we had a compassionate ministries workshop. We sat together, and at the end of the workshop, the local pastor turned to his congregation, and he started pointing. He said, you, you, you. He named ten people. And he said, you people are the Compassionate Ministries Committee. You should try it. (laughs) He named them as the Compassionate Ministries Committee. And this group of people didn't um, didn't really object too much. They sat at the back and they met together and they were looking at each other. And they said, what does a Compassionate Ministries Committee do? And they, in their discussion, they didn't really know what a Compassionate Ministries Committee did, but one person at the end of the meeting said, listen, I, I don't know what we're supposed to be doing, but there's a woman just down the street from me who's given birth to a baby, and she has nothing. She has nothing at all to clean the baby or, or care for the baby. And so this committee reached into their pockets and got out some whatever they had, and they put it together, and they went and bought the woman a few things for her baby. And from that moment, this church has become transformed. They have become a compassionate church, an intentionally compassionate church, seeking ways in this very populated, very slummy sort of community, ways to, to assist people who are down and out. You know, in, when we think of a Thanksgiving offering, we think of World Evangelism Fund and bringing extra money for that, for world evangelism. Well, in West Africa, what they do is they bring sacks of rice and chickens and all kinds of harvest products, and they'll stack it at the altar. And then at the end of the service, uh, after they've given God thanks for the wonderful harvest, normally the pastor will go home with all the stuff, and he'll just use it to, to eat during the year. The pastor of this church said, no, let's take all this stuff and give it to the Compassionate Ministries Committee. Now, committee, go out into this community and give it to the poorest of the poor. Give it even to a pastor of another denomination if they are desperately in need. And they did. And this church has been transformed. It's the biggest church we have in West Africa. They're just creating a 2,000-seat capacity building on the edge of a swamp. And they, they carry this, this heart of compassion with them wherever they go. Here's a picture of, a, of catfish ponds. And this is really interesting to, to myself. Uh, Alana and Mitchell and Lori and I, we rented a government pond when we lived in Nigeria, and we stocked it with 5,000 catfish. And it was a lot of fun to go out to the pond and clean up around the pond so snakes couldn't get in and eat the fish. We were trying to experiment to see if it was conducive for pastors, local pastors, to raise catfish uh, in this pond so that they could sell them and sustain the ministry. Well, our, our little project was quite a dismal failure. We lost a lot of money, and the birds from the river would come, and you'd watch them. They'd circle over our great big pond and dive in at one end, and they'd come up with a fish every time at the other end. 
So at the end of a year, when we harvested, we hardly uh, received any return on our investment. But I was in Nigeria just before we came back to Canada here, and a local pastor had taken up the idea. He created these concrete tanks and stocked it with just a few hundred catfish, and he was on his third cycle. He'd successfully raised fingerling catfish to one kg, sold them out, and then restocked it again. This was his third cycle, which is a pretty good indication that it's a sustainable sort of activity. And he's using the proceeds to fund the work of the district in the Church of the Nazarene in Nigeria. These four ladies here uh, form the executive of what is known as the Girls Club in northern Ghana. And the situation for young girls in northern Ghana is not is not a pleasant one in many cases. Uh, Sometimes families who have uh, girls and boys as children, the the boys will receive an education. The girls may be denied an education. Or the girls may be given out to be wife number three or wife number four of somebody in the community. And when these girls refuse to be married, these schoolgirls, they refuse to be married or they run away and they're in distress. They can't fend for themselves. They can't feed themselves or, or afford school fees. This girls' club of Ghana hears about it and they somehow make a response. In some cases, they are able to... Yeah, please. How's that? Can we swap over? Okay. In this case, uh, the girls have uh, found a a young lady who um, refused to be married and she was cut off from going to school and cut off from supporting herself. And so the girls' club bought a sewing machine for her. And now she's sewing, creating all kinds of fine garments under the apprenticeship of a seamstress. The girls' club also takes it upon themselves to evangelize the youth in the local area. And they do service projects calling together all the girls in the area and they'll go and clean. In this example, they're cleaning up around a hospital. The girls' club is supplying the school fees for each one of these kids that have a white piece of paper in their hand. And they're also providing the tuition for one of their members to be, become a nurse at a nursing training college. Pigs play an important role in the girls' club. Uh, when a girl is needing to support herself, and she's been driven away from her family perhaps, the girls' club tries to buy her a a pregnant sow, and they'll teach her how to care for this sow. And when we think of raising pigs in our environment here in Alberta, we think of confinement raising, and it's very costly to carry feed to feed pigs. But in this environment, you just give them a little bit of something at the end of the day to call them home, but in the morning, you turn them out and they go off and they fend for themselves. Free-ranging pigs, so they're very inexpensive to raise, and they're contributing to the raising up of Christ-like disciples through this girls' club in northern Ghana. This pastor to the left, Pastor T, introduced me to these four kids, and I wasn't really sure why he was introducing me to them. I greeted them. We were on a bit of an exploratory tour in his part of Liberia, And when he introduced me to these kids, he said, follow me. And very soon I figured out why he wanted me to know about these kids. In this part of the world, um, HIV-AIDS prevention is critical. 
And he is training these kids, 15 of them, four of which you saw in the previous slide. He's training them to broadcast on the radio holistic messages of HIV-AIDS prevention in the area. And there's, they broadcast in five local languages. They're right on the border of Ivory Coast and Guinea. And so these kids are being mentored by this pastor as disciples themselves, and they also are broadcasting this holistic message. Radio ministry is also becoming very important in the Church of the Nazarene in the Westfield. The previous slide was Pastor Sima, who is 16 years old, and he's training to be a pastor. Uh, We had a a little uh, communications class for a week together, and as part of the curriculum, I asked every student to prepare a little radio broadcast. And so we brought in some signature music and some exit music, and in the middle, we had every student prepare a message, a devotional message, for the radio. And Pastor Sima put together a very fine message of salvation. Pastor Sima is 16, and he... uh, is very intentional is in his community in Freetown, in Sierra Leone. He's a high school student, and when his school is finished at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, he comes back to his community, and he gathers some other friends around him, and they themselves hold their own school for the street kids in Freetown. It's a very poor community that Sima lives in. And I asked Sima, how is it that you people can teach at night? Because the sun goes down in the tropics very quickly, 6, 6.30, and it's dark very quickly. And when I asked him, how do you teach at night? He said, well, on Tuesdays, I bring the candle. And on Wednesdays, my fellow teacher here brings the candle. And on Thursdays, my friend here brings the candle. These people in a poor community are sacrificing what they have and what they know to raise up disciples because they're not only teaching mathematics and language skills. They're teaching a holistic message about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We use the Jesus film a lot on the Africa Westfield. You've heard the stories. People come to Christ in amazing numbers. Uh, Muslim communities turn to Christ in the north part of Benin and Togo and Ghana. It's a phenomenal ministry of intentionally bringing the Word of God to these remote places in their own language. We have theological education courses which do the same. A course of study that's a bit bigger than the one here. I think it's 28 courses. And people all across the Westfield in 20 or 30 training centers are studying, studying, studying as best they can at diploma level, certificate level, even at the bachelor's level now to try and learn more about this Christ and this faith that we serve. Our hearts are are quite sore, uh, having moved from West Africa three weeks ago. You know, there's so much there that we miss. There's so many things you'd see day-to-day on the street that we don't see here too often in Calgary or in Edmonton. It's a beautiful part of the world. And it's a beautiful, a very refreshing part of the world from a spiritual standpoint as well. If I approached uh, Russell and I said, Russell, how's, how's your family doing? Uh, you would, your, your response, the first words out of your mouth would be, oh, I thank God. Pastor Stu, how's your business? Oh, 
by God's grace, would be your response. Immediately, whether you're a Christian or Muslim or from any background at all, in probably the whole continent, the first words out of your mouth will be an acknowledgement to God, giving thanks for who we are and what we have. The whole Westfield is a beautiful place. There's lots of things to see. Uh, let's all go for a visit sometime. We can cross some rivers together. And We had the privilege of having Alana and Mitchell and uh, Cassie and Alana's friend Daniel come for Christmas. There's lots of places to, to have some rest and relaxation. We're going to miss it terribly. But in all, if we were to summarize 11 years of time in West Africa, it would have to be tied in with the raising up of Christ-like disciples. This is a sign in French from one of our new works up in Guinea that JJ planted not long ago. And it reads, Our vision is to make disciples in the image of Jesus Christ." in all the nations. That's our role. That's our goal for each and every believer. And if you want to look at Scripture and say, what does that look like? What does it really look like to be a disciple maker? Let me point, to you, point you to a couple of people. In the New Testament, it's worth studying this guy named Barnabas. Barnabas is his nickname. Barnabas isn't real, his real name. His real name is Joseph, this Levite from Cyprus. And if you do a study of Barnabas, which is his nickname, which means son of encouragement, you will discover that Barnabas uh, surfaces at key times in the New Testament life, particularly in the life of Paul. You know, when Paul um, was blinded and then had the scales removed and became a Christian, and started preaching and teaching in Damascus. When he escaped Damascus from the persecution and, and went to Jerusalem, the apostles did not believe that Saul had become this Paul guy, that this guy, Saul, who had been persecuting them, was now this Paul guy who was part of them. And who stood with Paul? It was Barnabas. Barnabas stood and said, this guy is for real. His conversion was for real. Listen to him as he speaks and preaches and expounds on the scriptures. And Barnabas uh, was sent off to a place called Antioch because the work was really growing there. He was sent there because he was a good man and a holy man. He was sent up there and he went and fetched Paul from Tarsus to be his assistant. And so you keep reading about this Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Some money was raised to, sent, to be sent to Judea, and it was given to Barnabas and Paul. And shortly after that, in the book of Acts, you'll now read about Paul and Barnabas. The words have changed. The order has changed. And it's like Barnabas has taken a step back, and he's pushed Paul forward. If you want an example of what a disciple-maker looks like, study Barnabas. He's not even finished when he's finished with Paul. Paul and Barnabas went in separate directions over this person came named John Mark, who Barnabas had been discipling. 
And the end of Barnabas' story is that Paul seeks to have John Mark sent to him because he would be useful for the ministry. Barnabas is a discipler throughout his, his life. Study him to see what it looks like to be a discipler. Because we are called, we are called under the authority of Jesus Christ to have lives that are, are lives of raising up disciples. The other person, of course, to look at is Paul himself. Paul, when he uh, moved around, he, he moved from one place to the other, encouraging, teaching, staying for some time, coming back later. When he was put in jail, he didn't stop. He, start, he kept writing letters of encouragement. And if you want to look at a summary statement of Paul's life, a good place to look would be Colossians 1.28, where he, he, he very specifically says, by teaching, by preaching, by admonishment, his goal is to raise people up perfect on the last day. To raise up those that God has put in our, past, in our path perfect on the last day. That's our role and our goal, to raise them up perfect. If you want to look at the next verse, Colossians 1.29, it speaks about this struggle. It's not all about the Holy Spirit doing the work. It's not all about us doing the work. 1.29 talks about the Holy Spirit working within the life of Paul as he seeks to raise people up perfect on the last day. Well, what does that all mean to us sitting here in Calgary at this moment? What could that look like? I'm convinced after 11 years of being in West Africa and being vitally involved in the church there that our, our whole life is supposed to be somehow wrapped up in disciple-making, in mentoring, in being a disciple ourselves. God brings people across our paths. Uh, we have special relationships with people down through the years and we're called to pray for them. We're called to encourage them like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We're, we're called to teach and preach and admonish if that is what it takes. And not just our peers or those who are coming up, or young Christians, but we are to take and hold up our pastor and push our pastor forward that he might be presented to God fully mature on the last day. And our leaders and our DS, they all need us to cheer them on and support them on. Amen? Amen. I pray that this is our vision. It's a biblical vision. It's a vision worth basing your life on. Amen.